0: So happy World Communion Sunday. As we gather around the communion table today, millions of people will be gathering around those tables all over the world, sharing the bread of life and the cup of salvation. And I'm really glad that our church has partnerships around the world with Christian communities, Christians in Guatemala and in Peru and in Haiti and in South Sudan and in Indonesia and Kenya. We've got connections with all these places. And people are gathering for worship in those places this very day. Thanks be to God for that. While it would be very appropriate to celebrate one or all of those um, mission partnerships and connections today, instead we're focusing on Native and Indigenous communities here in this country and around the world. Um, I hope some of you got to enjoy that drum circle in the courtyard and the, uh, the class that we had earlier today as well. Our scripture for today comes from the book of Genesis, which is the book where we've spent the last four weeks with our sermon series on women in Genesis. The subtitle of that series was Hearing the Voices of People Long Silenced. In the same spirit of listening for voices of people long silenced, I want to approach the text today listening implicitly for the voices of native and indigenous people through the lens of scripture little side note, the phrase, hearing the voices of people long silenced, that we used over the last four weeks, comes right out of the Presbyterian Church's brief statement of faith, which was approved after the work of a committee back in 1991, after unification of northern and southern branches of the church. And the phrase that's in that statement, hearing the voices of people long silenced, was recommended for inclusion in the final statement by the only Native American member of that committee that assembled the statement. So next time we affirm our faith with that statement, you can remember that perhaps. So in the book of Genesis, we read about God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that they will have descendants as numerous as the stars and that those descendants will end up living in a land of slavery and oppression And then eventually God will lead them out of slavery and oppression to freedom, to the promised land. This long journey going towards the promised land, leaving slavery and oppression, it's known as the Exodus. There's a lot in the Bible about it. It's a central story, foundational story of our faith. It tells about these Hebrew people who were enslaved by Pharaoh, lived a brutal life, God rescued them, led them through the wilderness, led them through the sea. Pharaoh's chariots were destroyed there. Then that long journey, and then they end up in this new place. This exodus story of leaving oppression and going to a place of freedom, that story has inspired people for hundreds of years with the hope that God could really rescue us from times of slavery and oppression and lead us to something new, a new place literally or metaphorically. God is seen as the liberator, the one who gives freedom to the Hebrew people and to us. And God's hoped to continue with that role of being the liberator. In the history of our country, enslaved Africans who were brought to this country found great hope in the narrative of the exodus and this promise of freedom, let my people go, freedom from slavery, right? Elsewhere in the world the story has meant a lot. The Exodus story has meant a lot. In Latin America, in particular, with the growth of liberation theology, people growing up in, in cultures of social, political, and economic oppression. They looked to the, the churches there, look to the story of the Exodus for great inspiration. I know this well in college. I was a Latin American studies major. I did a senior thesis on the role of the church in the Nicaraguan Revolution. And after I graduated from college a hundred years ago, I spent a year living in Nicaragua. It wasn't quite 100 years ago. You were supposed to laugh at that part of the story. (laughs) Anyway, the point being, um, this story of Exodus has been really powerful to a lot of people in our history, and even to this day, people who've been oppressed and faced challenging situations. So the biblical account of God doing this is indeed a very inspiring story. But there's a big problem with it. There's a major interpretive problem with this story that I didn't even really realize until after I got back from Nicaragua. And to this day, I think we collectively just kind of ignore it. Listen for God's word from Genesis chapter 15, the end of Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I give this land... From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thanks be to God for the words of scripture. Those of us who went to seminary and have spent a long time studying the Bible... Face a great temptation whenever we stand up to offer a sermon. The temptation is that we want to, I want to, fill the sermon with all sorts of interesting historical, theological, biblical tidbits, minutiae that we've gleaned from our study. Things that I think are just fascinating and very, very interesting. I'd love to fill the sermon with those things. Well, Early 20th century, Reverend Harry Emerson Fosdick, pastor at the Riverside Church in New York City, cautioned fellow preachers about getting too mired down with too much of this biblical, theological, and historical minutiae, and too many of those tidbits. And he said, nobody except the preacher comes to church desperately anxious to discover what happened to the Jebusites. So over the years, I have tried to heed this guidance and tried to restrain myself and avoid too many of those tidbits and too much of that minutiae um, from the Bible. But today, I actually think we need to pay attention to the Jebusites, to the very same Jebusites. The Bible paints a grim picture of the story of the conquest, when the Hebrew people eventually arrive in this promised land and take it over, the land that had belonged to all these other groups, including the Jebusites. At various points, we read about how the natives in the land were decimated, slaughtered, mutilated, etc. It's a horrible account whether or not it really happened. That's some scholarly historical debate. But the narratives as presented are rather grotesque at points. One of my seminary classmates, a professor named Robert Allen Warrior, he's now um, at the University of Kansas. He's part of the Osage Nation, and he's taught at Cornell, Stanford, and the University of Illinois. Over 30 years ago, just as I was entering seminary, he wrote an article which was required reading for my Theology 101 class, and I still remember it all these years later. The article was called, Canaanites, cowboys, and Indians. And he wrote about how God moves from being the God of deliverance to being a God of conquest, of just sort of a radical transformation in God's nature. And he implicitly asks about the fate of the Jebusites and more importantly about how this narrative of the Exodus has been used through history to justify various forms of conquest. Perhaps the most egregious example is here in the United States when people came from Europe seeking religious freedom and seeing these United States as the promised land, as a place where they could come and be free from whatever oppression they were facing in Europe, and that's a good thing. But part of the story is challenging. As as Warrior points out, in his article, many Puritan preachers were fond of referring to Native Americans as Amalekites and Canaanites. In other words, people who, if they would not be converted, were worthy of annihilation. And sadly, that mindset was all too strong in the history of our country. And that same thinking has continued into the 1800s with the notion of manifest destiny, something a lot of us learned about in our history classes and in uh, you know high school or wherever, that the United States was destined by God to spread democracy and freedom and capitalism across the entire continent, and that led to all sorts of brutality and cruelty towards native populations, which most of us are still gradually only learning about. Dr. Warrior writes in the article, the quote Senior bulletin, the Canaanites should be at the center of Christian theological reflection and political action. They are the last remaining ignored voices in the text, except perhaps for the land itself. Bible commentaries express little concern for the status of the indigenes and their rights as human beings and as nations. So we've had this sad history of Using biblical text, or I would say misusing biblical text, to justify oppression of our own, um, collectively, humanity through history, and conquest. Native communities in this country and around the world have and continue to resist, and slowly we're learning things together. The July issue of National Geographic, a magazine I enjoy reading month by month, it's filled with stories of creative and persistent native communities reclaiming their sovereignty in various ways, reclaiming their land and reclaiming their ways of life. One story in the National Geographic tells about a group of people who are reconstructing totem poles out in the Pacific Northwest because the lands where the native communities continue to live have had those totem poles taken away by collectors and explorers and people who thought they looked nice. The article suggests that totem poles are to native communities, something like stained glass windows are to religious uh, Christian people. So I got thinking, what would it be like if somebody walked into the church one day and just took out the stained glass windows and brought them to a museum because they thought they looked nice? What would it be like if somebody came in and and took that cross because they thought, That's an interesting cultural artifact. I should take it and put it in a museum somewhere. That's essentially what's happened with Native communities. And we tend not to realize that. Many organizations now do land acknowledgments. Some of you may have seen those or experienced those or maybe even been part in planning those. Land acknowledgments are when a specific organization recognizes the land upon which they're organization is, was once owned by a prior Native tribe. And sometimes the history of that land acquisition is fraught with violence and deception. To do a land acknowledgement well isn't just standing up and patting oneself on the back and saying, I'm an enlightened person and I know about the Native Americans here. It involves conversation and research and relationship and hard work and respect. I think it's something worth looking into here at Covenant, especially after reading about a neighboring church that has had a several year history of engagement with native peoples, native history. St. Dunstan's Episcopal Church on University Avenue has done verbal and spoken land acknowledgments about the Ho-Chunk Nation for quite some time now. And earlier this year, they decided to take a little bit more action There was a news story recently about how, after a long period of research and reflection, they paid $4,000 to a Wisconsin Native American sort of umbrella organization, describing the payment as a land tax, recognizing that the land that they acquired was taken by violence and deceit um, over the years. It's a fascinating account. So just when we read about Moses. getting back to the biblical text, when we read about Moses leading the people into the promised land from slavery to freedom, it just isn't right for us to say, God led the people to the promised land and it was theirs, just like that. We have to ask questions about those people who were already there, like the Jebusites. Now, for the record, historians and theologians aren't really exactly sure what did happen to the Jebusites, they may have been destroyed in, in battle and uh, may have been absorbed into the Hebrew people. There's actually an interesting theory by a biblical scholar, a guy named Norman Gottwald, who says that um, Canaanite populations, lower class populations, peasants may have revolted against Canaanite elites and been supported by this band of recently freed slaves who joined that struggle. It's a fascinating theory that I'd love to share with you, but it's one of those theological tidbits that I could get mired down in too far, so I'll just let it go at that for now. The big picture is that we need to read the Bible carefully and critically and mindfully, listening. Listening for the voices of everyone, people who are in the text, people who are kind of behind the text, and asking ourselves again and again and again, what is God saying to us? How is God calling us? How can we be faithful followers of the God of love after reading this text and given the world that we live in? One way that it's helpful, I think, as we approach the Bible is to be mindful about the ways we approach the text and mindful about the ways we put ourselves into the story. It's only natural when you read a story to kind of think, who am I in this story? Think about the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the best known parables of Jesus. This is a foreigner who helped an injured traveler by the roadside after religious leaders ignored that injured traveler. We like to think of ourselves as good Samaritans, as people who would make the effort to help the people who are injured by the side of the road. I've even preached sermons encouraging us to be good Samaritans, and that's a good thing. But sometimes maybe we're the innkeeper in this story. Maybe we're the guy who does his job and doesn't really seem to get involved or take interest, just kind of goes through the motions. Sometimes maybe we're the person who's injured by the side of the road, physically or emotionally or spiritually, in desperate need of someone to come by and help us. And maybe we need to be willing to accept that help when it comes. And sometimes we're probably the religious elite in the story, who walk by these situations of suffering, too busy or too preoccupied or too whatever, to get involved and do anything. In fact, as I'm thinking about it, if we continue to ignore, disregard, mistreat Native populations or other people in the world, then we essentially are being those religious people who walked by and didn't lift a finger to help the person, unlike the Good Samaritan, who did. So what's important for us on this World Communion Sunday and really any time is remembering the basics, remembering the good news of God's love that Jesus came to bring that is for everybody. We read about that in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus came and it's his first sermon according to Luke's gospel. It's his preliminary message. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he makes it clear saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news. And this comes just a little bit after the angel, at Jesus' birth, had proclaimed good news of great joy for all the people. So Jesus has this message, proclaiming good news. But it's almost like Jesus recognizes that he has to clarify this, to, to remind the people who hear this, that the good news is for everyone. So the full quote says, God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The whole quote comes from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus chose this to begin his ministry, knowing the human proclivity to maybe circle the wagons and forget about the other, whoever the other might be. Jesus came to bring this good news. To the whole world, not just to the religious people, not just to the people with lots of money, not just to the nations with the biggest armies. Together, we need to keep listening and keep learning about God's love, which is for everyone, and then keep finding ways to share that love with the world. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God, thank you for sending Jesus into this world with a message of good news for everyone. Help us to be mindful of that this week and the people that we meet, the news that we watch, the situations we come across. Help us to know that your love is for everyone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.